Welcome to Mastering the Attention Economy podcast. I'm your host, Ari Lewis. Twice a week, we interview entrepreneurs, executives, and industry leaders on how to break through the noise and capture the audience's attention. Today's guest is Rob Henderson. Rob is a doctoral candidate at the University of Cambridge, where he does research on social and evolutionary psychology. Rob, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, you know, I connected with you over Twitter. You're a, a prominent writer. You know, one of my favorite articles you wrote is about your theory on luxury belief systems. I think it's a you know good starting point. Can you share with the audience what that is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me, Ari. Um, so yeah, the luxury beliefs idea came to me when I was sort of reading through um, some old essays and some old old texts from Thorsten Veblen, who was a, an old sociologist, uh, late 19th century sociologist. Um, he wrote about luxury goods and brands and sort of the, the habits and customs of, of the elite of his era. And reading that along with some other research that I'd come across in uh, social psychology and in evolutionary psychology about the importance of status, um, there was a paper that I read that had recently come out, I think sometime last year, which revealed that people who are um, generally of a higher social class, higher economic class, uh, actually care more about social status than people who are sort of lower on the socioeconomic scale, which is sort of maybe a little bit counterintuitive. You might think that people who are sort of on the lower end would care more to obtain more status, but that's not the case. It's sort of the higher up you go, the more you care about status. And so those two um, sort of lines of research, along with what I've been observing in the world and the strange and unusual to me um, beliefs of highly educated people who are, you know, attend places like like Yale or places like Cambridge, Ivy League universities, and so forth. Um, the belief systems are so different from what people uh, believe. Uh, you know, the kind of people who, who I grew up around. Um, I grew up in a sort of like lower working class community, was raised in foster care, spent some time in the military. And so I tried to understand why are the values and belief systems of the upper class so different. And so I concluded that one way the upper class distinguishes themselves are with these opinions and ideas and beliefs. Um, they try to distinguish themselves, stand out in some way by adhering to unusual or strange or difficult to understand um, uh, opinions and beliefs. And so rather than display social status with luxury goods, as in the days of old with the powdered wigs and the pocket watch and the monocle, I think today it's more like here is this, you know, sort of counterintuitive belief um, or this, you know, um, idea or opinion that you wouldn't hear uh, someone without a college education express. Yeah, I I really I, I love that idea, and it was it was so new to me when I when I heard it. You know, I, one of the, the questions I guess I have as a, a follow up to that is, you know, do you think companies are are thinking about that and those theories when they're marketing to um, consumers? And you know, for for both the 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 lower you know income consumer and the higher income consumer, is is there you know attention being geared towards? Uh, these 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 elitist luxury type you know material items. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've seen some interesting um, ideas in in the media and from from interesting thinkers on uh, this idea of woke capitalism. Um, and I, I think uh, I think this was from the the psychologist or behavioral scientist Clay Clay Rutledge. 
uh, he had this great tweet. It was something like, um, you know, there now, now companies are pretending to care about social justice to sell products to people who are pretending to hate capitalism. Um, and and I thought that was so clever. And I think there is something something to this idea that in in a capitalist economy, when you know, like it, it's not that difficult to produce. Um, to produce goods that that are that are similar to what's already on the market. So how do you you know how does Coke distinguish itself from Pepsi or how does whatever iPhone distinguish themselves from Samsung or whatever it is, you know, Apple or Samsung? I think one way is to imbue that product with a feeling, right? And if you can associate that feeling with with a kind of luxury belief that you know by buying this product and displaying it, you're associating yourself with the upper class, with the belief systems and values of you know, people who are sophisticated, I think that that's a clever marketing strategy. And I know you've talked to sort of add onto that as a, I think a natural segue, uh, reward systems with consumers and how, you know, brands or, or software and, and you know, something like an Apple will reward um, users. You know, can you talk about um, sort of like intermittent versus predictable reward systems and, and how those are playing a role too in, um, you know, the, the way marketing and, and the way brands are trying to keep consumers on their platform. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like one of the one of the things that's, you know, in some ways dispiriting, I think, is like, you know, on the other end of your phone or on the other end of these social media platforms and all of these, you know, sort of electronic products that we're using are you know, very wealthy corporations who hire super smart behavioral scientists and, you know, behavioral economists, social scientists who understand how people work and you know one of their goals is to get you to keep swiping keep scrolling keep going and so they are a lot of them are very aware of how the how the research looks so you know, this idea of intermittent rewards i i think the origin of this goes back to um bf skinner who was uh, sort of one of the founding uh, icons of behaviorist psychology and um, the story goes, um, I think he was either working with rats or pigeons, but what he, he was trying to basically modify their behavior by rewarding them with food. Um, so every time they would perform a certain act, he would give them like a little food pellet. Um, but so as the story goes, he was sort of getting tired of every, you know, you have to pay very close attention. They do something, he'd want to reinforce it. So he'd give them a little food pellet. And so he started doing it every other time or every fifth time they did it. He was just sort of getting lazy and only doing it every so often. And what he found was that um, when he was intermittently giving these rewards, they were more likely to perform the certain action than when he was doing it on a regular basis. And there was something about this unpredictability of when that food would come that reinforced this behavior or, or sort of, yeah, was more, it was something, yeah, more rewarding about it or something um, that reinforced it, uh, strengthened it even more. Um, and so this principle now applies to, I mean, a simple example for humans would be like slot machines, right? Like what keeps people pulling that arm on the slot machine is knowing that at some point eventually you're going to win, but you don't know when that is. And so it's going to keep you going. But if you knew that, you know, every sixth time you get a little bit of money or whatever, like I think if people would get bored, but it's that unpredictable quality. So this also happens with, um, with, with notifications on your phone. Um, you hear that little ding, you don't know what, what that means. Is it a text message? Is it a Tinder match? Is it, you know, what is that noise? What, and, and who is it, right? Like, if you knew that every time there was a ding, it was your, you know, it was, it was one of your buddies, same guy every time, probably wouldn't be as exciting as, you know, you hear that ding and it's like, who could that be? And what app is that? And who's on the other side of that? And like, 
you know, that, that sort of mysterious unknown quality, that intermittent reward um, is, is very powerful. Do you, do you think these trends are, are you know, good or, or bad for consumers? Because I, I, I've seen a lot of, you know, conflicting information on both. Some are like, oh, it's great that we're getting information faster than ever. And but then the, then the others are like, oh, no, our, our attention, we're never paying attention. We're always like 10 seconds. Oh, something notification. You got to pay attention to something else. You know, how, how have you seen that from more of a, a psychological point of view in, in the work that you're. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've come across some some studies. There was one study showing that um, like even having your phone in the same room uh, can can sort of reduce attention span and, and focus and productivity. So yeah, I, I don't remember the specifics of the study, but it was something like, you know, if you have your phone, even if it's turned off, but it's just on your desk, um, it can still sort of affect your productivity. I think there's some part of our brain that is still like attached to it that wants to like check it, open it, like, is there something there? Like, it's just hard not to check. Um, so yeah, having the phone in another room or, yeah, I mean, like, I don't always follow this, but yeah, I try to either put my phone in airplane mode or turn it off when I'm trying to do some deep work. One um, piece of advice, I think this is from Cal Newport, although I've heard this, this advice from others, is to basically, um, first thing in the morning, um, to just you know, keep your phone away from you, don't check email, don't do anything, and spend like the first hour or two in the morning with your coffee or whatever, and try to get the important work done there before the afternoon. Usually the afternoon is when the avalanche comes and people start asking you for things. But in, in the morning, things are a little slower, and that's, I think, the best time to, to do some deep work. Yeah. Do, do you think consumers actually know they're being affected? You know, I, I always love people who are like, oh, I've never bought anything from an ad. I can't believe, you know, F Facebook makes all this money on advertising or, you know, oh, I, I never, you know, when there's a notification, I never, you know, buy that good. Do you think there's like this deniability among consumers that, oh, I'm not really being affected by it, but they really are. And they're, and they're part of that, that system that you're studying and talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that a lot of us are reluctant to acknowledge that we're we're human beings and that we're vulnerable to you know persuasive advertising just like everyone else. I mean, I think, I mean, there is research on uh, I think this is like the third is it the third person effect something something like this. But basically, the the finding was that people generally believe um, that others are are sort of more manipulated by by media uh, than they really are. So sort of we think that everyone else is the sheep that, that you know, easily obeys the media or whatever. Um, but, but we actually overestimate that. They're not quite as manipulable as we think, but we underestimate our own manipulability. So when we ask, you know, like, how, how, how persuaded are you by media and advertising and so on, we say, oh, not at all. But it turns out that we're actually more, um, more persuaded and manipulable than we think. So we overestimate how sheep-like others are and sort of underestimate our own sheep-like, um, you know, mentality and behaviors. So getting back to status, I don't know if you saw one of the uh, companies that recently relaunched is this company called Brandless. And their whole idea is like, oh, our goods are cheaper because, you know, there's no brand attached to it. And I've been seeing this more and more where companies are, are launching. You know, I know another clothing company where it's it's they, they it's the same material as Prada, but it doesn't say Prada. You know, do you think these trends are, are, are going to succeed Um or there again, there's that status symbol. There's that attention of no people want to be associated with the Prada, the the the, the elite goods. Yeah, yeah. There was uh, some research on this, basically um, finding that people people tend to differ 
um, on an individual level, how much they care about status. Um, pretty much everyone cares to some extent about status, but some of us really care about it a lot, and some of us, you know, it's, we care, but not quite as much. Um, and, and the finding that I saw was that people who have a high need for status, um, higher than average, um, they like what's, what are called like loud luxury goods. Like they like to show the Prada or the Gucci or whatever, whatever the, the emblem or the logo is. Um, you know, if they, if they went to a fancy college, they might tell you in the first uh, 10 minutes where they went to school. Um, but for people who are sort of lower than average in, in uh, need for status and validation, um, they also like, you know, good quality goods, you know, luxury goods, but they like quieter symbols. Um, that tend to only register to other high-status people. So they sort of want it to be quiet and sort of like quietly signal to other people who are sort of in the know. Um, you know, yeah, this is Prada, but this is like a special, you know, particularly expensive <laughs> kind that only rich people notice. So I guess, I guess on that note, you know, I know you've uh, talked about social compar comparison theory and the stuff I've, I've heard you speak about as well as write about. You know, do you think that tribalism and that like, Oh, my friend's wearing Prada. I'm. I have to wear Prada too. Plays a role in it. Um, and if 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 someone is not in that that sphere, you know, do they do they compare themselves to their own peers, or do they can compare themselves to the the peers that they aspire? To? Oh yeah, interesting. Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, fundamentally, I think each person has this desire to both fit in and stand out in some way. Um, and so, yeah, I think like when people are hanging out with, in, in their peer group, they, you know, they tend to want to look similar enough to that group. But what you'll find, in, and, and there are interesting writers like, like Robert Greene, uh, who pointed this out, that sometimes you do see people who um, are dressed in a very provocative or unusual way, but within that friend group that they're a part of, even if they stand out and, and they're noticeably, you know, you know, externally different in some way, um, they tend to think the same way. So even if you look different, you have to think the same um, as your peer group if you want to sort of be accepted and be a part of part of the group. It's really interesting. And I guess you know on that on that thinking um, thinking section of things, you know, do you think that so in advertising, it's become more and more targeted. Do you think these types of targeted ads are 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 good for consumers in that, you know, they, every every ad should be targeted towards a specific peer group and that people are getting better things? Or do you think those are creating even more social comparison theory, more social comparisons of, no, you know, I got to keep upping my game to, to be better and better and, and have more materialistic things because brands are, are coming out with more things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen like interesting um, opinions on this. We, we, we talking to people about this, like, oh, I, I like targeted ads because, you know, why would I want to see something that I, I that I don't want? You know, like I, I want people to, or I want these corporations to know, these algorithms to know my preferences so that I only see the things that I like. Um, but I've also seen some research showing that targeted ads aren't as effective as we think and that, you know, oftentimes, you know, the only reason, you know, these ads target us is because, you know, we, we would have bought those things anyway, so it actually, you know, in the end isn't actually that effective. But, you know, I, I think that in terms of social comparison, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure that's ever going to go away. Uh, and, and beyond, like, the advertising side of things, I, I think social media in general is just sort of adding adding fuel to this, just pouring gasoline on, on social comparison. Um, 
it's hard to, to look away from it for a lot of people um, and, and to not compare themselves to what other people are doing. I mean, I've, whether it's on Instagram, you know, whatever vacations people are taking, I've noticed this with academics too, like, oh, like this person always seems to have a new paper out every so often or, you know, this, this writer is, you know, has this many followers or whatever. Um, you know, it's, it's always a part of us and, and I think it can be hard to, to take a step back from it. Um, and, you know, I think as, as we begin to wrap things up, you know, we talked about addictive systems and, and all these things that are in place to, to get us addicted and, and buy material goods. But, you know, what should consumers look out for when uh, identifying these, you know, potential uh, traps and, and what are ways to, to fight back against that? Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I, I think that being aware can help to some extent. I think it can mitigate it, you know. I, you know, I'm, I'm in some group chats with some friends and stuff, and sometimes they'll like take a screenshot of a uh, of an ad that they get, and they're like, "What does Facebook know about me that I don't know?" You know, it'll it'll be like an ad for for um like uh, male pattern baldness. <laughs> they're like, "I'm not balding." Does Facebook like have some information about me that knows that I'm balding? Um, things like this, and so I, I think like there's this sort of meta awareness now that like all these ads are being targeted at us, and we we can sort of poke fun at it. Um, and I think that can help to some extent to to avoid these traps, but but I mean the the real way would just be to to disengage altogether, um, to just unplug from it. Um, but I'm not sure how realistic that is. Yeah, well, I, I, one of the tips that you gave, I don't even know if you remember saying this, but put your phone in grayscale mode. I really like that, and it's actually it's worked well for me. Yeah, grayscale is huge. Um, not just for ads, but just for like you know checking your phone less. I mean, I've never seen a study on this, and this would actually be a pretty fun and simple study to run, is to just have people put their phone in grayscale and sort of check how frequently they open their phone that day. Um, and I would bet it would be quite a bit less. I put my phone in grayscale mode, and it's just, yeah, less appealing. Yeah, no, it's it's been been a game changer. But I always like, oh, there's some color I, I, I need to look, and then I take it off, and I forget to put it back on. But, um, you know, as we wrap yeah. things up, um, you know, Rob, I want to say thanks for joining us. You know, where can folks, you know, find you on uh, social media. I know you have an email newsletter, which I, I highly recommend, you know, where can they find that and any other things, you know, you want to share with the, the listeners? Yeah, um, you can just follow me on Twitter at Rob K. Henderson. Um, I link to all the stuff that I write, all the things that I read. Um, yeah, my newsletter's in the bio. So just at Rob K. Henderson. Great. Well, Rob, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And um, until next time, guys, see you then.